Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And I would direct your attention to the end of that chapter, verses 57 to 62. Luke, chapter 9, verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The title of our sermon this evening is Barriers to Following Christ. There is a propensity within fallen human nature to make excuses. This is common to all sinful men. Now, when we think about others making excuses, we think of them as as rather flimsy things, inconsequential things. So we'll say, oh, well, he or she is, is just making excuses. But it's very different when it comes to ourselves, because when we're fashioning them and, uh, and producing them, we think of them very differently. We think of them as reasons. We think of them as credible, rational, substantial reasons for why we think this or that, or will do or not do this or that. And this is, too, part of our human nature, to, to take what really amounts to an excuse and to and to convey it as, as a reason in our own minds. So we have things that we're told. We have truths that are revealed to us, things that men know, duties that fall to us, responsibilities that come to us. And our consciences testify to the obligations that we have with regards to those things. And yet within uh, our flesh, there is this war to push back against it and to sometimes very creatively uh, fashion ways of, ex- of, of avoiding those responsibilities or, or relieving ourselves of the responsibilities that come to us. Now, all of this our Lord knows well. He knows what is within man. He knows all the depths and all the twists and turns and all the variation and all the complexity that is found within the heart of man. And so he is chiefly qualified, chiefly capable of coming to address all of these sorts of things. And he does so winsomely. He does so wooingly. He does so mercifully. He doesn't leave us in our self-deception. He doesn't leave us in our stupor. He doesn't leave us under the paper shields that we create for ourselves. He comes and removes them, first of all, exposing them for what they are, 
but with the intention of mercifully removing them in order to bring us forward in the path that he has, has called us to. And we see the Savior at work in precisely this way in the text that's, that's in front of us this evening. Now, you'll remember uh, perhaps the context here. Uh, we're really at a, a hinge, both in Christ's ministry and in the Gospel of, of Luke. Um, in verse 51, it says, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he's up north. And now the time's come. And so he's drawing near. And so he sets his face like a flint. He's going to beat a path southward. He's going to have to pass through Samaria in order to make his way to Jerusalem, where the culmination of the whole purpose for which he has come uh, would be ultimately uh, fulfilled. And so really the next 10 chapters of the Gospel of Luke are, 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 are basically fleshing out all that that would um, entail. He stiffens his face to go up to Jerusalem. And really, this is, um, by way of context, it's set in juxtaposition to what we find in our text. So here is the Lord. He's been, he knows the Father's will. He's been given a calling and a duty. He's come as the mediator. And now he is set about with a deliberate intention of fulfilling what God has laid upon him. Whereas those that we hear in the passage before us are the exact opposite. They're looking for ways in which to relieve themselves of what Christ is, is calling them to. And so here is Christ. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Why? In order that at Jerusalem, he might secure the salvation of all of his elect people. In order that he might redeem sinners unto God. But in the process, that whole route from where we find him in the north all the way to the cross, even on the cross itself, the whole way he is gathering, gathering, gathering souls unto himself, calling sinners unto himself. And so that's what we see in this passage that is, that is before us. It came to pass that as he went in the way, and then we have this encounter with three different individuals. And what we find here are barriers, so really excuses that people uh, have in their own hearts and minds. These are universal. They're not unique to the three individuals cited here, but they are recurring. They are perennial. They are constant. And they come to the unconverted, and these are barriers that the unconverted form in order to uh, protect themselves from the obligation to follow Christ, but they're also in various degrees found within the hearts of the redeemed, within God's own people, and ways in which the Lord calls us to follow him in specific areas that we also uh, find these sneaking up on us in our own hearts. And the Lord comes this evening uh, to root all of that out in leading us to follow on uh, to know the Lord without concessions and adjustments. So we're going to note three things. Each of these are represented in, in each of these three individuals. There are three different barriers. The first barrier that we come across is the cost. So first of all, the cost of following Christ. Verse 57, 
Uh, and it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew that this individual was a scribe, one often associated with the Pharisees and others, so we know some background with regards to his character and so on. He may have been, like many others of his kind, that thought that the Messiah was coming to set up a temporal kingdom, which would overthrow Rome, would reestablish the glory days of David and of Solomon, and to bring back Israel to its, its preeminence. And if so, then perhaps he is motivated by a desire for a share, a share in that honor, a desire to be a participant in all that that might entail. And so he, he offers himself. Notice this isn't in response to Jesus saying, follow me. Uh, this is, it would seem, uh, un, unsolicited, if you will. And, and that by itself, in one sense, is remarkable because here is Jesus. He's on the road. And there's one man who's noted here as making comments. Thousands have heard his sermons and have seen his miracles without this response, without voluntarily offering uh, this at all. And yet here, it seems evident by the Lord's response that the man had not counted the cost. I mean, these are words that are easily enough spoken when he, he says to, to our Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. But they can also be words that reveal ignorance and inexperience. Because following the Lord Jesus Christ is no stroll in the park. Uh, this is not something that comes with a casual commitment. There are many who have made such light uh, overtures and commitments who have quickly fallen off, as you know, with the stony ground here who springs up with great joy. And then the heat comes and it withers and there's nothing that comes of it. There's no root that has has actually taken, uh, has gone down deeply. And so here's a man offering himself, it would seem perhaps hastily. He says, whithersoever, right? This is a large offer. He's saying, I'll go wherever you go. I'll, I'll go through whatever you go through. I'll, I'll endure whatever I may be called upon to endure in following the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus' answer betrays something. It betrays perhaps rashness, it betrays his, his suddenness, uh, that, that he is uh, not aware of the, the weighty difficulties that would come uh, with following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's Jesus says of, of himself, he says, foxes of holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his, his head. Now, there were times when he stayed at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house and so on. The meaning isn't so much that he's utterly homeless and destitute, but rather that he is enduring uh, immense discomfort. That if we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not enjoy all of the comforts that the world at its leisure does enjoy. And so the Lord Jesus Christ's speaks straightly to him, speaks plainly to him. 
If a person is merely interested in honor, in, in a getting something from the Lord Jesus Christ that would be of benefit to, to their own happiness or their own praise or their own profit, then they best think again because the call to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is a call to give up everything in terms of earthly, human uh, sorts of, of blessings that one might otherwise cling to. Jesus says, no, that his way is a way of, of sacrifice. And you think, well, this, this seems, you know, this seems abrupt. It seems a little cutting, perhaps. But let's be clear here. Jesus never, ever, ever discourages a willing follower. He never discourages a willing follower. But he does often discover the worldly hypocrite. He knows what's within the heart of man, and he's addressing him just like he did with the rich young ruler who said, you know, all these commandments I've kept from my youth up. And the Lord says, well, there's one thing you haven't kept, one thing you haven't done. You need to sell everything you have and follow me. And he went away sorrowful. The Lord had a word for him in season that was specifically targeted to him. And Jesus is saying to him and to all of us that the call to follow Christ is a call to be strangers and pilgrims and foreigners in a strange land, not to be thinking in terms of a worldling or as the Gentiles think, thinking in terms of what we get and receive and the comforts that we enjoy in this world. No, Jesus is actually drawing us away, drawing our minds away, drawing our affections away from the perishing things of this world, not setting our hearts on those things, but rather setting our hearts on him and therefore setting our mind and affections on things that are above and living for another world, for a world that is, is to come. And so he's in saying, follow me, it's a call actually to turn away from the world, which, of course, the, worldly th the worldling thinks is utter nonsense, thinks is absolutely crazy. You know, that after all, the things of this world are the things that are most desirable and the things that we should be seeking to accumulate and enjoy and maximize and whatever, that our life actually consists of these things. And Jesus exposes that. When he says, follow me, you'll remember, as he said to his disciples, follow me entails taking up your cross daily. Following the Lord Jesus Christ entails denying yourself. These things can't be extracted from one another. You can't follow Jesus and not be denying yourself. You can't follow Jesus and not be taking up your cross every day, that these actually define the path, the way of what it means to follow the Lord. When he says, take up your cross daily, he's saying it's, it's a constant, it's a continual cross-bearing. It is something that is perpetual and sustained. It's not shoulder your cross initially, but that the whole Christian life is one of cross-bearing and of, and of, of self-denial. Self and so the Lord addresses this, this whole issue of the cost. This is a barrier, right? People think, well, you know, children think to themselves, I'm going to actually, I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to be, you know, a, a, a sprinter or something else. I'll be a, a runner or something. No concept whatsoever 
all of the enormous sacrifice and pain that that would entail in order to achieve such a thing, even if one had the natural abilities and, and gifts. No follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has a life of ease. Any who do, something is desperately wrong. Because to be a follower of Christ means, as Paul tells Timothy, to live godly is to suffer. And there's going to be all sorts of afflictions that the Lord lays on us in order to wean us from this world and in order to deepen our and sweeten our attachment to him. It means the believer is going to be disliked and out of step with society, not just in our, not just in our debased society, but in any and every society and in every age. It is a life of self-sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ, of giving until it hurts, of loving difficult people, of making very painful choices. We're to endure hardness as good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're to be prepared to be despised and afflicted and tried and to be in the fray and fight all our days, to be running the race all our days, to walking humbly and dependently and prayerfully upon the Lord for his grace all our days. None of this is to discourage. It is to inform. And it's not to discourage those who would set out to follow genuinely by faith and repentance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to inform us. Right? The, the opposite is done within broad evangelicalism in our day. These things are hidden. They're buried. They're never seen. So, so that the message that is, that is given is one of lightness and liberty and joy and blessing and often attached, often too, too often attached to even the fleeting things of this world. You know, the Lord wants you to have remarkable health, robust health. The Lord wants you to have lots of wealth. The Lord wants you to have, you know, a phenomenal job and wants you to have all of these gifts and graces. And this is what you have in coming to the Lord Jesus. Isn't it so wonderful to be a Christian? Because we have all of these things that the Lord has pledged to us. And it is a truckload of garbage. That is not what the Lord has promised his people at all. He's promised them something infinitely better than that rubbish. He's offered us something that is far superior, far more glorious, with joys that are far more intense and satisfying and enduring than merely giving us more of the world from what he's delivered us and called us from. And so the cost has to be presented up front. It needs to, we need to, as Christ did, you know, this is, this is not a call to pomp and ease, right? There's no soldier in their right mind that becomes a soldier thinking, it's going to be great, you know, we're going to like, it'll be balmy and we'll have great weather and it's going to be, we're going to get to go to wonderful places in the world and enjoy ourselves and sit back and eat MREs and it's going to be all this wonderful, it's kind of like a paid vacation. No soldier thinks that. Every soldier anticipates that the call to be a soldier is going to involve threats and harm and hardship and sacrifice and sleeplessness and all sorts of difficulties. The same thing with so many other areas. If you're a, if you're a captain on a, on a ship, you recognize there's going to be storms and tsunamis and all sorts of things that, that you're going to have to face. So it is 
with, with the Christian as well. There are those who profess without any inclination or interest or willingness to endure the persecution that that may entail or the pain that it might entail. And so the first barrier is the cost, the price tag. Now this filters down into all sorts of other things beyond the call to come to Christ for those who are unconverted. How often is it for the believing soul when in the course of of the Christian life, an opportunity presents itself that is difficult, right? An act of service or a call to sustained prayer or giving or whatever else it is. And the thought comes, I'm not up to it. I don't feel like it. I don't, I don't feel like making that phone call. I don't feel like going and serving that person. I don't feel like having that conversation. Right now. I don't feel like a whole bunch of other things. I don't feel like it. It's the cost. And that so often presents itself as reasonable and, well, I've got, you know, I've had all these other things going on. I have all these other things that are circumstances that are swirling around it that, that legitimize my reason, which is, veil, which is a veiled excuse. And the Lord may be speaking to you this evening on this very point where he's been pressing upon your conscience things that he has set before you that you are tempted to wiggle out of. And the Lord's coming to you and he's saying, no. This is the cost of what it means to follow me. Trust me. Follow me as I've, as I've called you to follow me. I'll provide all of the strength, all of the grace, and I will bring superabundant blessing. We never lose in following the Lord. This is true, I think, for young men that you know, are entertaining the thought of going into the ministry, those who are training for the ministry. I'm going to tell some of our students. You know, so often decisions are made, and truth be told, the price tag is the determining factor. I mean, men, there can be men that are wrestling with questions and questions of principle and practice and theology and all sorts of things. I mean, I talk to ministers, I talk to students, and I don't say it out loud, but I see it clear as crystal, where they're wrestling through things. And you know what? It's not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of argument. The fact is that they, they admit in one way or another, the force of biblical argument. You fill in the, the blank and whatever the, the thing is that's being studied. They can see the forcefulness of the argument. It's not a lack of persuasion with regards to the truth. At the end of the day, it's the price tag. If I embrace this doctrine, this truth, this principle, this practice, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me in big ways. So this filters right down into the, the Christian life at all sorts of ways, the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. People want both. People want to have Christ and to have carnality, have their own comforts, have you know, the things that they, that they desire. And the Lord says it's all or nothing. We're to follow him, and he doesn't have a place to lay his head. And if following him means you don't have a place to lay your head, it is gain to be with him, even without the other. It is gain to part with the world. It is gain in order to win 
the kingdom of heaven. It is gain to give in exchange for our really inconsequential sacrifices, our greatest sacrifices, our, our, our pittance, in contrast to the e- eternal rewards that the Lord gives to his people and their willingness to follow him, to love him, to serve him, and so on. So the first, the first barrier in following Christ is the cost. Uh, the, second, the second is delays. So come back to the text, verse 59. And he said uh, unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. So here is an appeal to delay. Right? He's not saying never. He's saying not now. Let me put this off. In the Gospel of Matthew, the person is described as a disciple, not one of the 12 probably, but one of the disciples in the larger group of those that are following the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we come to this, and no doubt many of you have read this many, many times, and you think, this seems harsh. It seems harsh what the Lord Jesus says. The man is saying, let, let me first go and bury my father. And you think, well, you know, what about the fifth commandment after all? You know, honor thy father and thy mother and things like that. You know, burying the dead was, was a duty that was considered, you know, above all others in, in, in many ways in terms of responsibility. Now, uh, there could be several things going on here. The man did not say, my father is dead. So, otherwise, he'd already be involved in burying his father, one would presume. But rather, he could be saying, let me delay until my father is dead and I bury him. In which case, there's no concept of urgency, right? There's this sense of the legitimacy of delay rather than urgency. But there's more than this. Because actually what's necessary, so often the case in our reading of the New Testament, is a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. And so what's happening here, and they would have recognized this immediately, the Jews, unlike perhaps some of us would recognize. You may have a clue because we just read this past Lord's Day, Numbers chapter 6. So in Numbers chapter 6, we have the benediction at the end, but the first part of that chapter is about the Nazarite. And you have the Nazarite vow and all that that entailed and the things that were were associated with that, right? This life of a period of uh, whole consecration unto the Lord. One of the specifications is that they are not to have any contact with the dead, right? They're not to touch the dead, even their own father, mother, brother, sister, and so on and so forth. They're to be wholly consecrated unto the Lord. If their, if their parent died uh, during the period of the fulfillment of that vow, they were prohibited from, from touching the dead. Furthermore, you have in the law the, the, the legislation with regards to the priests. So in Leviticus 21, where the priests also had the, this, this prohibition 
um, that was specified there in Leviticus 21, verses 11 and 12. And so the Jew, of course, knows this well. They know the law with regards to the priests in, in, in Leviticus, and they know the background with regards to, to, to the Nazarite. And when you bring all of that to the text, well, now it becomes a whole lot clearer. Because when Jesus says, follow me, he is calling for a life of complete, total devotion, consecration unto himself. And he's saying, this, this is an all or nothing. To follow me is tantamount to what you would have had with the Nazarites and the priests and so on and so forth. It requires everything. It is full consecration to me. And our duty to God always is above our duty to anyone else, including our parents. And you see this exemplified in Jesus right from his adolescence when he's in the temple and he's busy with the doctors and he's engaged in his father's business and his parents are saying, why didn't you put us first? And he's saying, don't you know, I need to be about my father's business. That's numero uno, that's number one. Right? You have the same thing later on where in his interface with Mary, he does something similar. And he, 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 he rebuffs her, saying that his time had not come to be revealed yet. And then another occasion in the Gospels when his mother and brothers come and, the, and, and those the crowds that are with him are saying, your mother and brother are here. And he says, he who is my mother and brother are those who do my will. Right? So he's, you see clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus himself that the duty to God uh, transcends the duty to, to anyone else, including parents. There's nothing more important than following the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to be done speedily and without delay. This man is saying, not now. He's not saying, not never. I, I, I will follow, but give me some time, as it were. This is the language that Solomon gives to us with regards to the sloth. All of the excuses that are given in the book of Proverbs. There's a lion in the streets, right? which seems ridiculous but was rational in the mind of the one uttering it. If I go out into the street right now, there could be, and there were lions in the area, I could, you know, a lion could devour me. Be like a person saying, I can't run out, I can't run through the rain to go do something for, for someone because I could be struck by lightning. Well, that's, that is possible, but it's an excuse, right? Sloth, there's this, this conflict between conviction on one part, the conviction of the soul, and the corruption of the soul, which is raging against that conviction and is manifest in the production of excuses like this. And so Jesus' answer is, let the dead bury the dead. A man who is alive to God with a call on him is, is, is called to do far greater things, to proclaim the kingdom of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we have delays and this can take various forms right so you have there's some of you who are unconverted and you think to yourself i never deny what the minister is saying in the pulpit i i believe jesus is the son of god i believe that he died on the cross i believe he's the only savior of sinners i believe that everyone who comes to him by faith will receive the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled unto god i believe all those doctrines i believe what the bible is teaching i believe there's a heaven i believe there's a hell i know i have a i, I know i have a soul that can be lost or won. I know all of those things. I'm not denying any of those. And you comfort yourself with that. And you, you think to yourself, my intention is, I, I, I am going to be a Christian. I do want to be a Christian. I'm, I'm not resistant to these things. You know, I, I actually 
think that it's the right thing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to come to him by faith and so on and so forth. But you say sermon after sermon, not now. Sermon after sermon. You say all of those things are true and I am, am intent on, 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 on laying these things to heart. But not now. It's too difficult. There's, there's other things that are going on right now. Or there are dangers, risks, you know, that I, I face and so on and so forth. Or I don't have the time that this requires. It's so important that it requires more time than I have to give to it. Or whatever else. I mean, you can, you can you know, proliferate all sorts of nonsense. Things that, that seem reasonable and are never reasonable. They're all irrational. To say that it's difficult. It is more difficult for you to come to Christ after this sermon than it is in this sermon. Every sermon you hear and resist makes the next sermon or the sermon a dozen sermons from now all the more difficult. You're actually, you're digging a groove. And the groove is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So that it is more and more, humanly speaking, difficult for you to actually come to Christ. And easier and easier for you to continue to say, not now. What is more dangerous than delay? I mean, if you thought I have, there's a 50-50 chance that, that my house is going to burn down tonight. You'd sleep somewhere else. Or you'd do something to solve whatever that problem is. This is the most dangerous thing in the entire world. Your soul and body for eternity hang in the balance. And to resist the Lord Jesus Christ and to gamble that somehow you'll live another day or live to hear another sermon or live to give these things consideration at a future time is the most irrational, ridiculous, dangerous thing a person can possibly do. Not enough time my friend, you don't, have, you don't have a legitimate time for anything else. The most important thing in the world is your soul. The most important thing that you have is a soul that needs to be saved. You, you, you can't afford to give time to anything else. No, the Lord says, delay is folly. It is a carnal security. People feel safe. You, you feel secure. You feel like it's still okay right now. I've heard sermons before and I hear sermons. I'll hear more sermons and it's okay. But it's a carnal security. It's an irrational security. Unbelief is the most wicked and perverse, reprehensible sin in the world to willingly embrace it, to willingly engage in it, is to provoke Almighty God. The Lord says, follow me, full stop, follow me, period. And he calls you to do so. But we find the same temptation in the Christian heart, in the, in the believing heart, this idea of delay. There are so many things that you know, we hear in terms of Christian responsibility and duty and things that need to be changed in our life, 
things that need to be changed in our family, in our marriage, our relationships, in our walk with the Lord, in our interface with Scripture, how much time we're giving to prayer in service in the church of Jesus Christ, living for the kingdom of heaven, seeking first the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you know, we could multiply all of those things. And you think, that is so good and so true and so right. And I really need to do that. I'm so excited about doing it. I can't wait to do it. But not now. The Lord's speaking to some of you this evening because that's exactly where you find yourself. Things you are fully persuaded of and you can even see the overwhelming blessing in them. Delay. Delay is the excuse that's presented. The Lord says, no, follow me. He's exposing it in order to remove it, in order to bring us blessing and drawing us to himself that we might run after him and might have him. The third thing is a divided heart. 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at, my, at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. A divided heart. The Lord calls for an undivided heart. Right? The man is offering himself. He's saying, I'll follow you. He's offering his, his service with a condition. And you know, he probably had in his mind Scripture. You say, well, what would that be? Well, there's a parallel. Think, children. Think with me. Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha. Elisha said something similar. And Elijah granted it to him. Elijah granted it to him. His, his, his mantle still fell to him. And so the man thinks, well, I can pull this one as well. I can repeat this one that has worked before. And the Lord says, no. You say, well, doesn't this seem inconsistent? Why was it allowed with Elisha? Why is it not allowed with this man? God knows what's in a man's heart. Two radically different things in the heart of Elisha and in the heart of the one here. And that's evident by the Lord's own answer. We get this a lot. Lot is told, do not look back on Sodom. Abraham is allowed to go out and look over Sodom with the smoke rising right? You have, you have examples of Abraham laughs and Sarah laughs. Sarah's called out. Abraham's not. Two totally different things going on in the hearts of those two people, right? You have Mary in the New Testament and Zacharias. The angel comes to Mary and gives her the, the, the message, and she says, how can this be? And she's not reproved for it at all. The angel comes to Zacharias and he says, in essence, you know, how's this, how can this be? I'm too old. And he's not allowed to speak, right? He's made dumb. Two very different things going on in the hearts of these people. The Lord sees it and knows it. And in this case, it's a divided heart that's found. It's a divided heart and the Lord exposes it. His answer shows that his heart wasn't engaged in Christ's service. He says, you can't plow straight while you're looking back. You, you can, you can, we don't plow perhaps in the same way they did then, though you may have a motorized plow. 
But if you're, if you're pushing straight, you know, with your plow and looking the opposite direction, what's going to happen? You're going to tend to go like this. You're not going to go straight. Or those of you who drive motorcycles know this. You know, you're going to go where your eyes go. And so if you look over there, that's where the bike's going. Right? Similar. Similar sort of, of um, analogy that the Lord is, is using here. And he's saying, basically, you can't follow me and be looking back on the world. You can't be looking after the world and looking after heaven. Remember Lot's wife, after all. She looked back, became a pillar of salt. She was hankering after the things that she had left behind. She died as, as a result of it. The Lord is saying, no, you can't pine after what is left behind. You can't dream of the life that you left behind. All the things I could have done, all the things I could be doing, all the things that I might still be able to do, and so on and so forth. No, the Lord says you're to be looking at me. Focus, single heart. Right? The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, as, as James says. We're to love Christ first, and we're to love Christ most. We can't hold anything back from the Lord Jesus Christ and be in his service. No, the Lord says we need, a, we need an undivided heart. We're turning from sin the call to follow Christ is to turn from sin, to turn from the world, to turn from service to the devil, and to turn to the Lord, and wholeheartedly to the Lord, and fully after the Lord. If our heart is on earth, if our heart is on the things of this world, we can't have a heart in heaven. In fact, the more you become worldly, and the more earthly-minded you are, the more unpleasant heavenly things are. So this is a word even to the believer. The more you allow yourself to indulge in earthly mindedness and in worldliness and to be engaged in all these things, you find that you become cold, that your appetite uh, is slackened for the things that matter most, the things of heaven, the things of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who are unconverted, the Lord says he's setting life and death before you. And he's calling you to choose life. He's calling you to turn to himself. Second Peter 2, verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again entangle therein. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. What we need is a fixed heart. The world would love to steal your heart. And the Lord says, no, our hearts need to be fixed, fixed upon him and upon him alone. And so the temptation is to think, well, I, I can, we wouldn't call it a divided heart, but we, we think to ourselves, I can dabble in both, right? I can, I can be fully for the Lord 
and a little bit partially living relief for the things of this world as an end in themselves for gratification and so on. The Lord's saying, no, our hearts have to be undivided. There's a beautiful example of this. Many of you will have, some of you will have read the, the biography of William Borden, who was known for a lot of things, came from very wealthy family, came from very prestigious background, was graduate of Yale, was at Princeton and so on, um, gave millions to missions. But at age 26, he decided himself to go. And he went to Cairo, to Egypt, and went there to learn Arabic and so on and so forth. And he died in his first year in Egypt of cere cerebral meningitis. And people thought, man, this guy was so incredibly gifted. He was super smart. He had all these opportunities, all these reasons. So, can you imagine all the things he would have done? All the things he could have accomplished if he had gone into, you know, some other occupation or had pursued philanthropy or some other, you know, form of influence in this world. And he threw it all away in order that he could go be a missionary in some far-flung place, Egypt, only to die of a terrible disease in the first year, never able to really accomplish much at all on the, on the mission field. Borden had a saying, which I think is great. We should probably all have it on our walls. He had a very terse saying. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, undivided heart. No retreat, that's an undivided heart. No regrets. There are no regrets. And following the Lord Jesus Christ and following the Lord fully. And so the Lord comes in his typical combination of, of tender mercy and in his unyielding pursuit of souls. He comes to deal plainly with us, unconverted and converted alike, to meet us where we're at. He comes mercifully, all the barriers that we erect, he comes mercifully to level them and to remove them in order that the way is open for us to heed his command, to follow him, to be like Caleb who followed the Lord fully, who did not hold back and who did not capitulate and who did not cave when the majority were caving all around him, but to take the Lord at his word and to set the Lord himself in his sights and to pursue him with all the earnestness of grace that the Lord provided for him. And so here the Lord comes addressing barriers. The cost is one barrier. The temptation to delay is another barrier. And then a divided heart is a third barrier. May the Lord, by his grace, level all of these to the ground and grant us his mercy. And Jesus, let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, 
the one who is indeed rich in mercy, who deals bountifully, graciously with us, who diagnoses us, exposes us, relieves us of our own folly, leads us in wisdom, opens doors that no man can shut, draws us in order that we might run after thee, turns us in order that we might be turned to thee. O Lord, we confess that we are unworthy of such kindnesses. We, O Lord, in our fallen human nature, are prone to excuses, which we slough off as reasons. But thanks be unto thy name. The word of God removes these and enables us by grace to run in the path that has been set before us. O Lord, give us this grace too, that we might truly and fully follow our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name.